0: Pete Carroll may be the oldest head coach in the NFL, but he's still one of the league's biggest power brokers. I'll be explaining why on our Thursday edition of Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Greetings 12, this is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day, riding solo today for our Thursday episode, but plenty to chat about with less than three weeks until the 2023 NFL Draft. I'll be diving into the three main defensive linemen that have been connected to the Seahawks with the number five overall pick, some scouting reports in-depth statistics, trying to figure out who would be the ideal selection of the three players, when Seattle is on the clock later this month. Plus, I'll be taking a closer look at the offensive depth chart and where things stand now more than a month into free agency. Where do the Seahawks stand at multiple positions? Again, jam-packed episode coming your way. Looking forward to getting started. Make sure to check out, we just launched a brand new NFL Draft newsletter here on Locked On. Luke Inman's doing a remarkable job putting that together. So make sure to check out this free resource at LockedOnPodcast.com newsletters to sign up for your free NFL Draft news. Newsletter. Now for your lead story here on a Thursday edition of Locked on Seahawks. Now a month into free agency. The Seahawks have cleaned up with six outside free agent signings, including a couple of splashy additions, safety Julian Love coming over on a two-year deal, and of course, Draymond Jones, a three-year deal worth more than $50 million to continue reloading the defense. Bobby Wagner's back, Jaron Reed is back. So there's a lot to be excited about with the free agent additions that the Seahawks have made. But at the center of all these moves, and it was further reiterated today, speaking with Julian Love' his first press conference with local media. It felt like every single answer that he gave, it didn't matter what the topic was about, it kept coming back to Sir Pete Carroll, who continues to be one of the NFL's biggest power brokers. And what I mean by that, players still want to play for Pete Carroll. Don't let the discussion, the narrative that was out there before last season, change your tune on that. Players want to play for Pete Carroll, and it's been very evident this offseason. You just look at the way, even players that have been jettisoned by Pete Carroll. Last year, Bobby Wagner, for example, he gets cut. He plays a season with the Rams One year later, he is back with the Seahawks. And a big reason for that is because of his relationship that he's had over the years with Pete Carroll and wanting to play in this culture that they have in Seattle. And you look at some of the comments that other free agent signings have made this offseason. Even today, Julian Love. Just going to throw three up on here. Those watching on YouTube, you can see these quotes as well. But Draymond Jones, not even specifically citing Pete Carroll in this, but you know that Pete Carroll is at the center of it. When asked about coming to Seattle, he said it's a good place with a good foundation. They have a lot of people who genuinely care about you as a player and a person. That's what I need, a system and organization that cares about me beyond football. And then Bobby Wagner yesterday. Obviously, Wagner has an affinity for Pete Carroll, even with the way things ended last year, looking like he would never play for the Seahawks again. When asked about the reason for coming back to Seattle and why the culture is so great in the Pacific Northwest, he said, I think it starts with Pete Carroll. I think it starts with him, his leadership, the way he brings the best out of people. I think that's it. And then today, Julian Love, I could have put 50 different quotes up here. Again, every single question seemed to go back to his affinity for Pete Carroll and why that was a big reason why he decided to leave New York and join the Seahawks. He said he has energy, he has juice, he's for the players, and that's what I wanted if you've noticed the theme here, it doesn't matter we're talking about players like Bobby Wagner who already played a long time for Pete Carroll or somebody like Julian Love who played at Notre Dame in college and obviously Notre Dame players. They don't view Pete Carroll in the best light given the history when he coached at USC Bush push anyone. But even with that, he was really looking forward to having the opportunity to meet with Pete Carroll. And once he flew out to Seattle for his visit, it became very apparent early that this was the perfect match for him. And it's because Pete Carroll is so good at being able to communicate with players, whether it's talking about family, in this case with Julian Love, it was X's and O's. They were talking family for just a few minutes, and then it went right into watching film. And Julian Love is a football junkie, so he knows the buttons to push with different players. And you hear it all the time. He's a player's coach. That doesn't mean he's a pushover. But he is a player's coach, and he is going to do whatever it takes to get the best out of his players. So Julian Love is just the latest one to be persuaded by Pete Carroll with his charm, his enthusiasm, his football knowledge, the complete package that he has, being a coach that people want to play for. And you just look at the way this entire offseason has played out for Seattle with a couple players like Jaron Reed and Bobby Wagner coming back. We haven't had a chance to hear from Jaron Reed yet, but he didn't exactly have a great departure from Seattle. He wouldn't take a pay cut. So they ended up cutting him couple years later, he is back. We saw Richard Sherman back in good graces with Pete Carroll, even if he wasn't playing here again. Marshawn Lynch returned for the playoffs a few years back, and it didn't seem like that was ever going to happen. So he has a way of keeping that door open, even when the worst things happen. Someday he wants to rekindle things with Russell Wilson. He is going to be ready and waiting. Maybe not playing for him again, but he will be waiting for him. And that is such a pillar in the persistent success that the Seattle Seahawks have had, what they are heading into. You can hear that from the thing being said from these outside free agents coming to Seattle. Draymond Jones, Julian Love. These players are coming to Seattle because they believe in Pete Carroll. They believe that Pete Carroll and his staff can get the best out of them. They can become the best players they can be in the Pacific Northwest. Just being able to sell that is a big part of the battle. And just looking at this young roster, what they were able to do last year. Pete Carroll restored a lot of that shine, taking a team without Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner and a bunch of rookies playing to the postseason. And it looks like they are just ascending with some of the additions they've made. And so again... Pete Carroll, kudos to him. He continues to be one of the major power brokers in the NFL. He's one of the biggest draws. Players want to play for him. So if you've heard stuff out there, nobody wants to come to Seattle. There might have been a couple years where they were having a tougher time getting free agents to come here, and they don't normally spend a lot of money. But this offseason has further affirmed that, indeed, people still want to play. Pete Carroll they still want to play for John Schneider and this coaching staff they still want to be in Seattle and that has really set them up nicely here to continue building this roster you know that draft picks are going to be excited the draft meetings that they've had with a lot of these guys the comments from Anthony Richardson just being one example this is a draw Pete Carroll is a draw for players whether they're coming into the league they're veterans looking for a new team Players want to play for Pete Carroll, and it's really a great situation for the Seahawks, and it's the big reason why the decision made by Jody Allen, we know all the other factors at play here too, but... Jody Allen sticking with their coach and general manager last offseason instead of the quarterback has paid dividends for them and it looks like it's going to continue doing so with the talent that they are bringing into the Pacific Northwest. Coming up next year on our Thursday edition of Locked On Seahawks, I'm going to be looking at Seattle's offensive depth chart. Where's things stand currently? Which positions still need help heading towards the draft? And could maybe address in free agency still as well. I'll be diving into every position group on the offensive side of the ball coming up next here on our Thursday edition of Locked On Seahawks. This episode is brought your way by FanDuel. The NBA playoffs are almost here, and now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook, because new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's bonus bets back if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Then you can bet on everything from the money line to point scores and three-pointers drained. I'm a big fan of player prop parlays. You can make bets such as Fred Van Vliet of the Raptors scoring 20 or more points at plus 100, plus plus. FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payout with a same-game parlay. So what are you waiting for? Don't miss the chance to get your no-sweat first bet up to $1,000 in bonus bets when you go to FanDuel.com slash locked on. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on to learn more. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. You're listening to the Thursday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, riding solo for today's show. A special thanks, as always, to all the 12s out there for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. It's time to bust out the depth chart with the draft now less than three weeks away and free agency slowing to a crawl. There's been a few moves the last couple of days, but the Seahawks right now, they don't have much money to work with. In fact, they've been looking to cut players, move on from players. We saw Ryan Neal sign with Tampa Bay after they rescinded his restricted free agent tender. They're hurting for money right now, so they've been pretty quiet. Keeping that in mind, I wouldn't expect anything significant unless there's an extension or a trade that is brewing here in the next couple of weeks. I would not expect much coming from the Seattle Seahawks with their roster. That being said, it's time to look at the depth chart. I'm going to be breaking down all 11 positions, which areas look to be set, which spots could still have an upgrade, or they may be considering a high draft pick. So looking at our depth chart here, as far as positions where the Seahawks look to be set, I think right now the tackle positions stand out as number one because of the picks you invested last season. Charles Cross and Abe Lucas had fantastic rookie years. These guys should only improve going into year two as pass protectors and run blockers, a chance for them to have another really good offseason, get stronger, in particular Charles Cross. They should be set at the bookends for the next four-plus seasons. If things work out the way they hope, maybe this is your group of tackles for a decade. And so as far as stability goes, the tackle position stands out as number one by itself. On the flip side, positions that still need stability, Evan Brown coming at the center position to replace Austin Blythe, at least for this year, I think is an upgrade, but with it being a one-year deal, there still seems to be a need for a long-term solution to that spot in the guard positions. Damian Lewis is going to be a free agent after this year. So is Phil Haynes. He's never been a starter. Right now, he is your starting right guard. They can bring in competition, but... They haven't added anybody else in free agency. Maybe they do in the draft. So the middle of the offensive line is the opposite here in terms of stability. That seems to be the underlying theme here this offseason. Even though Evan Brown, in my opinion, is a pretty solid addition, he could be a long-term answer. Still feels like they don't have that long-term center that they have been looking for, really, since Max Unger was traded to the Saints as part of that Jimmy Graham deal. And then the guard spots, you don't know if Damian Lewis is going to be here beyond this year because his play has been good, but not great. He's been inconsistent. There's been some injuries in there his first three seasons. The jury's still out whether he's a long-term guy. Phil Haynes, this is truly a prove-it deal. Being behind Gabe Jackson the last couple of years, can you be the starter? Can you stay healthy? So there are plenty of question marks there. And I feel like the draft is wide open at all three of those spots right now for the Seahawks if they want to add some interior offensive line competition for the three expected starters. Jake Curhan's is going to be back as well, a guy that has started some games and played fairly well for the Seahawks. But they still have some long-term questions there. As far as your skill positions, I like where the Seahawks are at at quarterback. They clearly are looking at those top four and I've talked about it a lot in the show. If you have a quarterback in mind that you think is your long-term franchise guy and you have the opportunity to pick him with that fifth overall pick or even trading up, if that is what you want to do, your whole organization has to be bought in on it. But if that quarterback is there, then you can take that stab in the dark and go out and get somebody like Anthony Richardson. But You don't have to force the issue because Geno Smith was a pro bowler last year. He earned that with the way that he played, over 4,000 passing yards, 30 passing touchdowns, and led the league in completion percentage. I mean, he earned that opportunity. He was one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL last year. It was a remarkable story. Can he do it again? That's what they're banking on with all those incentives and the new contract that gave him those escalators. Can you hit those numbers again? If you do, you're going to make yourself a lot of money. And you're going to play yourself into our long-term plans. It's understandable why the Seahawks, though, have been a bit guarded with the way that contract is structured, not just because they're looking at these quarterbacks in the draft, but because Geno Smith before this year had never had a season that he completed more than 60% of his passes as a full-time starter. So they want to see him do it again. They obviously want him to prove that last year was not a fluke. They believe that's going to be the case. But they could guard themselves with insurance by drafting a quarterback. But picking a number five, that's not insurance. That's picking your future guy. So that's why it would have to be within the organization. We know this is going to be our starting quarterback a year or two down the road. He's got to be the guy. Then you trigger Drew back is another policy in growth last year with this football team. And so you get him back to learn again behind Geno Smith. If you don't draft a quarterback, you were fine with the two that you had last year. You should be able to get by with what you have. At the receiver position, it's very top heavy. This has been the case, though, for most of DK Metcalf's career with Tyler Lockett. They've had these two elite receivers, and behind him, Marquise Goodwin flashed at times last year. Now he's in Cleveland. D. Eskridge has been hurt more than he's been healthy, so they haven't gotten to see what he can really do on the field. He hasn't been very productive when he has been healthy. He is entering a critical time to show that he can stay on the field and produce, if not Derrick Young might be the next in line at the three receiver spot or an incoming rookie. I could see the Seahawks using one of those early first and second round picks they have to bring in another receiver to not just push Eskridge, but be the number three guy, maybe eventually surpass Tyler Lockett, who's now on the wrong side of 30. At some point, they're going to have to have somebody that can step up for him a few years down the road. Drafting receiver now. They could be well set up than to put that guy with DK Metcalf for the long haul at the receiving position. Tight end in short term is looking pretty good. We don't know if the Seahawks are going to hang on to Noah Fant. There have been some rumors out there about him potentially being on the trade market. From what I've heard, that might not necessarily be a rumor that has much teeth to it, but the Seahawks would certainly be willing to entertain. And if there was another team that would have some interest in him, Colby Parkinson, Will Disley will be back this year in short term, they look like they're in good shape. We've talked a lot on the show. If you're looking from beyond 2023 perspective, it would not be shocking that the Seahawks picked a tight end fairly early in this draft because it's going to be a position of need next year with Fenton Parkinson being free agents. Might not be able to afford to bring both of them back depending on how they play this upcoming season. So that is a position in the short term is good. Long term, you've got some question marks Adding in Will Disley's injury history and his bloated contract that makes some interesting discussion for the Seattle right now about what they want to do at that position. And I think really when you're looking from a depth perspective, the position that needs help the most right now is running back. Ken Walker, III third is a dynamic force. He has a chance to be a thousand plus yard rusher for the next several seasons, maybe contend for rushing titles in this offense, but Seattle, they have proven it time and time again, over the years, you're not going to get by with just one running back. They are going to need to add reinforcements in the draft. I would not be surprised if they're picking two guys and maybe even adding an undrafted player after that as a priority free agent because away from D.J. Dallas, they don't have any other proven running backs right now on their roster, and Dallas has been a rotational guy his entire career, not necessarily somebody that is going to be a full-time starter, a full workload back for you. So I think that's a position that they're going to have to tackle and figure out who can, who go after that's going to be a complement to Ken Walker the third maybe bring in another player that's fairly similar that has some pass catching ability that can be that third down back option for you. Dallas has done that in the past too, but they need to add Another one or two players in the draft, maybe three if you're looking at the priority free agents. That is a position year after year they have shown you better have three or four quality running backs because you're going to need them at some point. And right now they don't have the depth and they don't have the talent behind Ken Walker, the third and DJ Dallas to have any chance. In fact, there's just three running backs on the roster right now in an emergency. You probably have to chuck Nick Ballore in there as your fourth running back they need to add at that position. So certainly from the starting standpoint, I think the Seahawks are in pretty good shape. They might be able to add somebody at the receiver or running back position. that can play significant snaps. Maybe they draft a center that pushes Evan Brown right away. Maybe they draft somebody that can push Phil Haynes at the right guard position as well, but right now, they look like they're fairly set from a starter standpoint. There are a number of positions, though, both this year and a year or two down the road that they have some concerns they need to address from a depth perspective. And so I think that's where you're going to see a lot of the draft picks for the Seahawks this year on offense. It's going to be those guys that they can develop, that they can mold for a year or two that might be eventual starters for them. I don't see any huge holes that stand out that, hey, day one, you can pick somebody. Maybe they bring in a third receiver that gets a ton of snaps as a first or second round pick. But overall, the offense is in better shape from this standpoint where they have a really good foundation across the board. The interior offensive line's got some questions that they still need to address, at least bring in some competition there. But overall, you have to feel pretty good about what they're going to be returning from last year's team and the few little additions that they have made on that side of the football. Coming up next, speaking of defense being a much bigger question mark, there are three main players that have been linked to the Seahawks so far. If the number five pick Jalen Carter being one of them, I'm going to be breaking down all three of those defensive players, some in-depth scouting reports. I've watched a ton of film on these three guys the past couple of weeks. Not that I hadn't already watched some, but it's never too late to watch extra film. Scouting reports coming up, plus some statistics and really breaking down what would be the ideal situation for the Seattle Seahawks. So we're going to get to that here in a moment. A special thanks, as always, to all the 12s for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Make sure for your second listen to check out the Locked on NFL Scouting Podcast with the draft dues from free agency to the draft, salary cap management, and more. Join NFL experts Kyle Krabs and Joe Marino as they take you through what it's like to build a successful NFL franchise every Monday through Friday. Find locked in NFL Scouting with the Draft Dudes wherever you get your podcast and on YouTube. The Seahawks have a top five pick for the first time since 2009. How long ago was that? That was the year Aaron Curry was picked. It was the only year that Jim Mora was the head coach. They didn't have John Schneider or Pete Carroll in town until the next year. So that was a season that ended up being a year of reckoning they completely overhauled their front office and their coaching staff bringing in pete carroll and john schneider after having that number four pick the highest pick they've had since then that first year they had the number six selection they used on tackle russell okung last year they had the number nine pick they just haven't picked up in the top 10 though Very often because the Seahawks have either traded away their first round picks that have been in the 20s or they've been in the 20s not picking the top tier talents because they've been consistently in the postseason with a top five pick. They have a chance to get some blue chip players and we talk a lot on this podcast about quarterbacks, but. I want to shift the focus away from the QB today because they do have Geno Smith. They do have Drew Locke, and you don't have to force the issue for a quarterback. If there's one you like, then you can go for it. But this is a defense that ranked 31st against the run last year. They were inconsistent rushing the passer. They've lost a bunch of experienced defensive tackles that they released. Or somebody like Puna Ford, they have not re-signed and is still out there on the market there's a lot of help that is still needed on this defensive side of the football, particularly in the trenches. Luckily, there are three players that are consensus top five, top ten picks that are in the trenches that could potentially be available to the Seahawks. And I want to start off this discussion with a player that I'm just going to be upfront. I believe is the best player of the three, at least when you're considering the complete package. And that would be Will Anderson Jr., the edge, outside linebacker, from the Alabama Crimson Tide. You want to talk about burst. He has one of those rare, explosive first steps. And he's got that burst. He's going to immediately threaten tackles upfield. He's the kind of guy that tackles are scared of going into matchups and they don't get sleep at night during the week leading up to it because of his ability in an instant to blow by you. And he was really good at doing that. Alabama had 17 and a half sacks in the 2021 season at the college level. That is unheard of, especially against SEC competition. He's got almost 34-inch arms, too. So this guy, even though he's not the biggest edge rusher at 253 pounds, he's got long arms. He knows how to use them. He uses them in sync with his footwork, too, to beat tackles inside. I think the other thing that's worth noting about this kid, he is a really good run defender, too. Might not have had the tackle numbers last year. He played less snaps for the Crimson Tide last year. There were a few injuries sprinkled in as well. But... This guy is a well-rounded football player. He plays bigger than 253 pounds. He sets a firm edge. He is physical at the point of attack. He plays with violent hands. He does a lot of the things you see from bigger outside linebackers and defensive ends to couple with his elite first step. As far as concerns with this kid, I don't know that he has scheme versatility. I would question whether he would be a 4-3 defensive and he might be able to do it. But I think in Seattle's scheme where he's a stand-up backer most of the time, that is going to fit perfect with his wheelhouse, what he's been doing at Alabama where he can just shoot out of that two-point stance, get upfield, play wide nine, can drop back and cover. Some had an interception last season. Uh, This guy can do everything you're looking for for the 3-4. I just don't know in the trenches in the NFL, at least the size he's at right now, I don't know that he'd be a guy that would be a 4-3 defensive end or how much you would see him playing that type of role with even fronts if the Seahawks decided to use those some still in their hybrid defense. That would be something that certainly concerns me. You also look at his game, feels like there's still some room to grow from a counter perspective. He's been able to win with pure speed. He's got a few decent counter moves. But against NFL tackles, you need to refine that a little bit more. So not a lot of weaknesses, but there's certainly some to watch. And I think that there's going to be some scheme-related stuff that teams are going to have to discuss. I do like the fit for the Seahawks. And you look statistically last year, rankings amongst defensive ends and outside linebackers, according to Pro Football Focus, just 23 tackles that ranked 134th. Now, PFF... They don't do half sacks. And so when it says 14 sacks, first overall, there were a bunch of half sacks that were sprinkled in there. But that means he was getting to the quarterback in those situations. He finished first in that category. Fourth in pressures was 65. And the 22nd best grade, 83.6. Some of that brought down by the fact he did miss a lot of tackles, which was uncharacteristic for him. But he was dealing with some injuries. He played almost 200 less snaps last year for Alabama as well. So you can look at the stats. You can have some concerns maybe with how some things played out last year, but he has a long track record in the SEC playing for one of the juggernauts in college football, worked out well at the Combine, worked out well as Pro Day. He seems like a pretty safe pick. He's also got character on his side, and that's the big question with the number two player here on the big board. If character was not in consideration based on team need, then I think Jalen Carter would clearly be the Seahawks front runner for that number five pick. But we know all the bad news out there with this kid this off season. He was arrested for two misdemeanors, charged with two misdemeanors for his involvement in a street racing accident that led to the death of a former teammate and a Georgia staffer. And then he's called away from the combine, doesn't work out there. He's supposed to work at his pro day. He gained nine pounds and it wasn't good weight in a very short amount of time. Can't even finish the drills that he was doing, did no 40s or any of the testing stuff. So it has been a very disappointing season. That is clearly encompassing the biggest cons of this kid. You're looking at the maturity character questions, the red flags galore, the conditioning concerns. You can see it on tape sometimes, particularly that Ohio State playoff game. But let's talk about the positives, why he is still being viewed by many people as a top five talent, because that's clearly what he is. He played in a defense that didn't allow him to fully accentuate his pass rushing ability. What I mean by that, they ran a ton of stunts at Georgia and that a lot of times put him in situations where he was rushing upfield into multiple blockers to open up loopers behind him. And it didn't necessarily let him get after the quarterback, but he still had really good pressure numbers, a 10% pressure rate in his college career. And so you can see the flashes. I've seen enough to tell me that this guy could be a much better pass rusher in the NFL than he was in college. He's playing in a scheme that's going to allow him to be able to do that. He can one gap. He can two gap. He can. He can power step, he can mirror step. This guy is as scheme flexible as you are going to find. You can play him head up as a nose. You can play him three tech, you can play him four eye. He is a nuisance. And I think the biggest misconception, I agree with the conditioning aspect, he doesn't play enough snaps. That is certainly something to be concerned about, especially with what happened his pro day. I don't see the issues with effort. However, there might be some plays when he's getting gassed that he doesn't look like he's playing hard. But I don't know how many times on game film that I've seen this kid run outside the tackle box in pursuit and make plays. I see the effort. I see the motor from him. So that is not something I am concerned about. It is the fact that that effort getting in better shape off the field away from games has not been there. Is he going to be able to get that fixed with the right coaching staff around him? It's certainly a concern, but from a talent standpoint, this guy lives in the backfield. I know he only had three sacks last year, but again, the pressure rate, he was 16th among interior defensive linemen, according to PFF, with 32 pressures. And he did that on just 392 defensive snaps. Some of that was just the talent Georgia has. They can rotate guys in left and right, and they don't lose that much. They They have so many blue chip players on their team. He had the ninety-two. He had a ninety-two point three grade. That's second most, second best among defensive tackles as well. So even though the sack numbers are not there, and some of the pure statistics in terms of sacks, tackles, things of that nature are not as high as many other players in the country, you watch the game tape and you see a much different story. This guy's so much more disruptive than his numbers show. It really boils down to the character concerns, the maturity concerns. And what's going to stem from the things that have happened this offseason? Is he eliminated from the Seahawks big board? We don't know that yet at this point. Based on recent drafting, I would be surprised if he still is. At the same time, the Seahawks – Maybe you've had an opportunity to chat with him a few times and they feel more confident in his ability to come in with the leaders they have in the locker room and in the coaching staff that they can get this kid in a good position to be able to maximize his potential and really let it go in the NFL. We'll just have to wait and see. But clearly the talent is there. The red flags are legitimate, though. This is not one of those where there is pre-draft fodder. No, he has created a lot of these issues for himself. So we'll see what that means for his draft stock. As far as another could be saved perspective red flag Be tyree wilson coming from texas tech and you look at the pros from this kid he is a totally different player than will anderson jr he is a power rusher and he is a smooth operating one that's the best way to put it he's got an excellent bull rush at 6'5, 270 pounds a long arm that can be devastating. There are several plays that I was able to watch just from games last year where he was able to get tackles on one leg and get them off balance with devastating long arm moves, and then he gobbles them up with arm over moves rocketing back inside. He's more quick than fast, but he's got good quickness for a guy of his size and his height, and he sets a firm edge off uh, the edge against the run, he gobbles up tackles. He's got almost 36-inch arms. So this guy is a freak from that perspective. And He makes a lot of tackles that you won't see other defensive ends make just because of his ability to reach the player and that incredible length that he has. And the Seahawks should be fired up about this. He can play three-tech. He can play five-tech. He can play wide nine standing up at his size. If he gains a little bit more weight, he might be a prototypical 3-4 Uh, three tech in two or three years from now might be a guy that you can play in five tech when you're doing your even fronts or if you're spreading things out in pass rushing situations there's a lot of things that he does in terms of versatility that aren't going to be matched by most other edge defenders in this class as far as the cons again he is a polar opposite player in terms of strengths from Will Anderson Jr., he is not going to give you elite burst off the edge. This is not a guy that's going to be flying upfield and blowing by tackles all the time. Is he capable of doing it? Absolutely. And tackles have to fear him more for his pure power rushes, so that's going to open up some opportunities for him. But even when he wins upfield as a speed rusher, You're not going to see the bend. You're not going to see the ankle flexion from this guy that you're going to see from some of the smaller edge rushers in this class that really can flatten out their rush and get after the quarterback. A lot of times you see him bananaing around tackles because he's not able to get his ankles turned quick enough. The flexion's not there. He's not able to dip his shoulder and really turn the corner, flatten things out. And there's a number of sacks that were left in the field because that. I don't know how much better he's going to get in that capacity because of his size and just his athletic skills again he's more quick than fast and you don't necessarily see that flexibility from him and the other thing I noticed on game tape while his physical stuff is great this kid is a fighter he's going to battle in the trenches he physically can hold up against powerful guards and tackles I don't know if the mental game has completely got to where it needs to be in the NFL. There were a lot of teams in the Big 12 that were able to get him in bad positions when they put him in conflict against misdirection and read option plays. And there were a number of times where he got left on an island and he wasn't able to sit there and make the right read. He caught, was caught himself guessing late reactions to it, and so that's something he's going to have to clean up at the next level. Teams are going to know about that from scouting him at the college level. You better be able to improve upon that point and really sharpen the mental aspect of the game. And also look at his game and think that this is another kid very similar to Anderson in this sense. He is unpolished with his counter moves his hand usage is not where it needs to be so there is some rawness to his game he still was very productive with seven sacks last year seven the year before can get in the backfield as a run defender he'll chase runs down in pursuit, and you can see that on film, but I do have some reservations about where he's at in terms of being an every down end. I think there's a ton of upside here, though. And again, this kid, he ranked 16th in the country last year in pressures. He is consistent at getting after quarterbacks. He had a lot more tackles in the run game for Texas Tech than what we saw from Will Anderson last year. And he did all this playing just 10 games. That's where the real concern comes in. If we were looking at this with three guys that had no character issues and they didn't have injuries they were coming off of, then I think that you could make a case that – Wilson is right there with Jalen Carter and Will Anderson Jr. But he hasn't been able to do anything this offseason. He just got cleared by his doctor. So maybe he's going to have a chance to run a 40 and some stuff here before the draft. He's running out of time to do it, though. That is an injury that's hovering over things a little bit coming out of last season. But when healthy... I think that this is a very close race between these three players, and Wilson would be a guy that I think makes sense for Seattle schematically. He can play that 3-4 outside linebacker spot. He can reduce inside There's a lot of stuff he can do, and he's really fun to watch. He just is a different style rusher. He is going to win more with power. Will Anderson is going to win with that quickness, with that speed. You can even say there might be a little redundancy with some of the guys Seattle has on the roster, although I think he is just a superior player to what the Seahawks have. Wilson's going to give you some different dimensions that give some scheme flexibility. I think he can play in a 4-3-2 as well at his size. So I think all these guys are legitimate top five, top six talents, but – The last two, there are some significant red flags. I think the flaws in Will Anderson's game, you're willing to live with because of the ability to get after the quarterback and a very solid run defender at that. I think that is the ideal situation for Seattle. If somehow Will Anderson could fall in their laps at number five, you draft him immediately, even if edge rusher isn't considered your biggest need. Jalen Carter, if everything checks out from your discussions and he's still in your big board, then that could certainly make a lot of sense at number five, too. And it is your biggest need on the roster. You're looking at a guy that if everything clicks can be an all pro player. And Seattle hasn't had a chance to draft a guy like that in a very long time. And I think Tyree Wilson somebody that's going under the radar that some fans aren't necessarily giving enough attention to, in part because of the injury that he's dealt with, not being able to run and stuff. But this guy is more than athletic enough to do damage in the NFL. He's just not a straight-line upfield rusher. There's a lot of stuff he can do to get after the quarterback, and I think he's going to be a very good NFL player too. All three of these guys are worth consideration. We'll just have to wait and see what the Seahawks decide to do once we get to the draft coming up here in less than three weeks. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at CorbinSmithNFL. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube, and any other major podcast platform for free to ensure that you don't miss a single episode. Coming up tomorrow, our Blue Friday episode, I'll be joined by Dallas Cooper, the two of us. will be taking a look at Seattle's free agent additions and making some predictions and buy or sell. Should be a lot of fun on Blue Friday. Hope you'll be listening in. Thanks for tuning into our Thursday episode. Go Hawks.